Today, if it was not clear, it is the start of Advent. Um, but for, for many of you, I would guess, um, for me, Advent meant nothing more than a calendar that was taped to the door into my kitchen with little boxes that I would open up every day leading up to Christmas. Um, a calendar which when I think about now having kids, it, it backfired because it just left me really frustrated because all I saw was, oh, there's like how many more days until Christmas, right? Advent, if you're not familiar with this, um, the word simply means arrival. So each Advent that we will celebrate here in the life of, of Good Shepherd Oak Cliff or, or whatever church community you call home, um, we are looking at two different arrivals. We have this first arrival of Christmas where we say Christ has come, right? This amazing event, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, as we just sang, God with us. Uh, but that's not the only arrival. We are looking forward to Christ coming again when we will see the new heaven and the new earth finally perfectly realized as we've longed for. And so every Advent that we celebrate as we are alive will, will be between the first and the second Advents, right? And that in-between time can be filled with a lot of tension. Jesus came and, and he died and he was raised from the dead and his kingdom has broken in like we profess in, in the Lord's Prayer and we say, thy kingdom come, right? More, more, Lord, more healing, more goodness, more renewal um, through you. And yet, war still rages, um, whether it's the Middle East or, or wherever it might be 10 years from now. Um, innocent children are still casualties of war. Famine still robs us of life. Depression and anxiety still plague us. Addiction destroys families and disease robs us of our best years still. Jesus has come, but the world is clearly not the way it's supposed to be. And so I like Advent personally because I think Advent is a really, really honest time of year, right? It is a season that does not explain away the tension, but it recognizes that Emmanuel, God has come to be with us in the middle of that tension. And so Advent is a way that, that we remind one another powerfully as um, John chapter 1 reminds us that in Jesus was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness. So the darkness is real, right? The light shines in the darkness and yet the darkness has not overcome it. So that is the, the promise that we proclaim to one another during Advent. Um, this week we begin a four-week series called Christology. I don't know if that just got you excited or just like totally deflated you, right? Christology. Uh, you're probably familiar with this. The word ology comes from the Latin logia, which refers to logic or just knowledge, okay? So ology is the study of any subject, right? Biology is the study of bios, life, living things. Theology, the study of theos, God. Um, and theologians love to use the heck out of ologies. Um, there is eschatology, the study of end times, soteriology, salvation, pneumatology, the Holy Spirit. And of course, the one that we're looking at, Christology, the study of Christ, right? So the field of Christology is uh, dedicated to understanding the person and the nature of Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one that we believe to be, uh, I, I heard somebody say this once and I can never unhear it, God in a bod, 
right? This is what we believe about Jesus. In a way, Advent is preparing us for Christmas. Yes, it's the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. And so for us, um, it's, it's a strange one because Advent, or, or sorry, Christmas Eve falls on a Sunday. So we will have the next four Sundays here at 10 a.m. with our, our Advent series. And then Christmas Eve, if you are in town um, at 5 p.m., uh, Oscar and Lisa are going to host us for a worship gathering, um, just a time of lessons and carols in their home. But, but Advent, yeah, it's about leading up to Christmas. It's about preparing our hearts for Christmas. And Christmas is about the birth of this person that we call Jesus of Nazareth, right? And so who was he, right? That's, that's the question that we've been spending a lot of time with. In Mark's gospel that we've been in for the last few months, we've been looking at that question, who is Jesus, through his teachings, um, what he does, what he says, right? But here what we're going to do in this Advent season, we're going to kind of zoom in and just look at the Christmas story to answer that question, who is Jesus? What, what was this baby that was born? Who is he, but what was his nature? Is he truly this immortal, invisible, God-only wise that, that was born in a manger as a human baby? And how we think about God, how we think about Jesus is hugely important. There's this great line from A.W. Tozer that begins um, this wonderful book called The Knowledge of the Holy, and he has this provocative sentence. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So thinking rightly about God, about Jesus, it, it matters. What we think about God is the most important thing about us. So did God really become flesh as Jesus Christ? And what we think about Jesus is kind of the heart of this series, Christology, okay? And it, it shapes everything we do. And, and my hope is not that we would walk away with like more information in these next few weeks. And, and I actually, I was thinking about, here's my hope for what we would take away today, but also in the next four weeks. These two words of truth and love, okay? Truth and love. These often go together. Um, you might be familiar with like Ephesians 4 says to speak the truth in love. Second um, John tells us that Jesus will be with us in truth and love. So truth, what is this? It's, it's important for us to know the true things about Jesus. I mean, just to say it very simply, when we say the name Jesus, what are we talking about? Who are we talking about? Muslims speak about Jesus. He's the, the second most important person in their religion. But he is not the same Jesus that Christians profess. Actually, it explicitly says, so there's no confusion, God had no son, Jesus is not divine, Okay. Mormons believe in Jesus, but it's a very different Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses talk about Jesus. Again, a very different Jesus. And so while the name might be the same, the person behind that name is very different, right? Some say he was just a man. Some say he was born a man and he achieved divinity over time. And, and, and sound theology ha has been kind of this really important part of the church throughout history. The early church was especially concerned with passing on the message of Jesus in a good, true, and accurate way, right? There's this passage in Philippians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul says that he would spend his time defending and confirming the gospel. This word defending is the same word that we would translate apologetics here. Later, Paul says this in his letter to Titus. He says, you, Titus, you must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught 
so that you can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it, right? It's encouraging sound doctrine, but it's also refuting those who oppose it. And there is a little confrontation built into that statement, right? And, and my hope is not that we would walk away from these next few weeks like armed with better arguments to take to the Christmas family dinner over the Christ, the nature of Christ, right? And, and maybe if you are a confrontational person, you are licking your chops, but that is not what I want you to take away with from this. But there is at times a conflict that is worth having because God is worth it. And I don't think this gives us a license to be jerks or argumentative all the time, but historically, this has been one of the primary roles that the church has played, not just advancing the gospel, but defending and advancing the true message of that gospel. As Eric said when he read the Nicene Creed earlier for us, that is why we have these statements, right? Originating in the year 325 from the global church leaders that met at the Council of Nicaea, they got together to refute bad theology. And they spoke against these growing heresies about who Jesus was. And they came up with this document that affirms the true things about Jesus. You heard this phrase, I'll say it again. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten, Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. It's like, all right, guys, we get it. You're really, really trying to make this clear. Okay, so there was that council in 325. There was a council in Constantinople in 381. There was one in Ephesus in 431, Chalcedon in 451, the Council of Orange in 529. Okay, you get it, right? These councils, they came together because they took the words of Paul seriously that they said, we need to defend the gospel. We need to make sure there is sound doctrine moving forward and the truth of the gospel is being defended against these heresies. And there were multiple heresies. Uh, I already thought I was like just, you know, nerding out here too much. And, and I, I had a list of them. I'm like, okay, maybe we'll save that for, spread it out for a different week. And I promise this isn't just justifying like the, the debt that I incurred going to seminary. Like, okay, there, this is more than just that. But there are all these heresies that we don't really know about anymore because the church was effective at gathering together and saying, that's not true. So let's advance the true message of the gospel. And we affirm these truths today. We pass them on to others. And, and the purpose of this is that God would be honored, but that we would have a, a healthy spirituality to live into and out of. That we would know how to sniff out bad theology and to refute those. And we say that is not true of God. But more than just intellect, like I said, I hope there is truth, but also love. So the profound teaching of the Bible is that truth is a person. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so in learning truth, it is a way that we learn to know and to love Jesus. Like when people ask me about my wife, I don't say, yeah, she's amazing. Female, August 17, 1985, O positive, Dallas, Texas, 2009, Baylor. Like that might give you some biographical information about her, but she is so much more than a sum of that information. Now, those things might be true about her. Uh, I actually made up the blood type, and I think, isn't that the most common one? I was just shooting from the hip on that, O positive. Um, but those things might be true about her, 
and they might contribute. They do contribute to the story of her, but at the end of the day, I love her, right? Not the information about her. And that is my hope for us in this series, that that we are looking to stoke a a deep fire of love for Jesus. And so I I want us to walk away with with that this Advent and, and to maybe have a deeper appreciation of the miracle of Christmas. Like a proper Christology moves us into a place of rest right? Deep rest and peace and confidence in God's grace and and the sufficiency of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And that's what changes us, right? That deep gratitude of of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, that is something that that begins to move from our head down into our hearts. And that is where we begin to be changed. Okay, so that is legitimately, I think, the longest introduction to a sermon that I've ever done. And I've made a huge mistake and I didn't start my timer beforehand. So um, hang on for dear life, friends. I promise I'll keep this, this time in mind. But um, that's the why behind our series, okay? If you saw the graphic, where is the, our worship guide on the front? Um, this little picture here. If you saw this, uh, we might try to print it bigger next week so you can see in the four corners of this, notice, notice these four little phrases, okay? Fully God, fully man, no division, no confusion. Each of these four things is what is widely accepted as the, the true, you can use the word, orthodox view of who Jesus is, okay? I'm an extra banana bread for you. Um, not you, Gus, but anybody else, extra banana bread for you if you know where these phrases come from. Um, hint, it was one of those many councils that I mentioned earlier. So this comes from the Council of Chalcedon in the year 451. And remember, these, these were gathered together to refute these false teachings about Jesus. So the Council, uh, the, the council of Chalcedon um, came up with this phrase that became the definitive statement for the global church on the nature of Jesus, okay? Let me just read this for you. This is just part of it. It's long, but this is just a small snippet of it. The only begotten Son of God must be confessed in two natures, unconfusably, immutably, indivisibly, inseparably united, without the distinction of natures being taken away by such union. You get the impression that in like the fifth century, people had larger attention spans than we do now, right? Somebody would look at that and be like, too long, way too long. But what has come out of this is something that was called the Chalcedonian box, okay? A box, a square, four sides. And on each side of the square are these phrases, fully God, fully man, no division, no confusion. That is the the takeaway from the council that met at Chalcedon and this creed that they came up with. You've all seen an oil painting before, right? Picture a canvas, right? But have you ever seen a canvas that is not stretched and without a frame? Like it is a flimsy material and one that would not be good for painting on. But if you stretch that canvas and you add supports on four sides, all of a sudden that soft cloth becomes this perfect uh, medium for painters to paint on like they have been doing for hundreds of years. But if any of those four sides are missing, that canvas becomes unusable. Or if there's an image on that, that image becomes distorted and it's not like the author intended. And, And the Chalcedonian box is like the four sides of a canvas frame. 
Fully God, fully man, no division, no confusion. And if you take away even one of those, the image of Christ on that becomes distorted. And so that's what we are going to look at um, in each of these next four weeks, each of these four parts of that square. Today, what does it mean to say Jesus was fully God? Um, There were some movements that claimed that Jesus was not fully God, um, and those still exist today, but most notably in the, the fourth century, there was a church father named Arius, and he began to spread this message that Jesus was not equal to God, that he was created by God, and therefore as a part of creation, he was subordinate to God. Um, Arianism, as this came to be known, gained a lot of popularity. Uh, It spread pretty far until, you guessed it, church council was called, and they put that issue to rest. And they said Jesus was eternally, fully a member of the Trinity with the Father and the Spirit. Um, When I think about what all these councils did before, it seems like a far cry from what many councils do together when they gather and they spend months deliberating over the color of the new carpet in the sanctuary, right? Uh, More serious issues in the past, but... I want us to now look at, um, beyond just a history lesson, see, this also, I didn't think about this. I studied history in undergrad. I swear I'm not just trying to use all this, like, random knowledge that is somewhere in the recesses of my mind. But I want us to look at a passage that is one of the most important passages in the New Testament when it comes to understanding the nature of Jesus, okay? This is going to be in Philippians chapter 2. If you have a Bible and you want to open to that, we have some Bibles on the welcome table in the back. And I would encourage you to um, open to Philippians chapter 2. This passage has been referred to as the Christ hymn or the hymn of Christ. There's some doubt over whether or not Paul wrote this himself. And if he did, it was about 30 years after Jesus had died. But some say that Paul is quoting an even earlier hymn that was already circulating in the church. So it was 30 years later after Jesus died or even earlier. And the takeaway from that is that very early on, the message within the church was spreading that Christians believed that Jesus was fully God. They believed that Jesus had always existed And he did not seek to use that position for his own enjoyment, but he humbled himself by taking on human form, being born as that baby in Bethlehem, and to die for the sins of the world. Um, Today, there are many who would still claim that Jesus was, in fact, a good teacher and not God. Um, And this idea gained popularity that, that, well, Christians themselves didn't believe that Jesus was God. But if you look here at this text, within the same generation as those first disciples, Christians were already making claims like what we're about to read in Philippians 2. And the timing of this is crucial because 30 years later, there's a lot of people that are still alive or their parents were, were there, right? And they were witnessing Jesus or they knew people that knew him and, and they would be able to refute these things. But we have no record of people standing up against this. People in the early church clearly understood that this man was God in the flesh. And so, kind of to shift gears a little bit to say this is more than just a lecture, um, as we read God's word today, I'm going to invite us, let's stand together as I, excuse me, as I, as I read from Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And, and as we did last week, um, it would be appropriate if you wanted to, when I finish reading, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and you could respond, and you could say, thanks be to God. So uh, Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, ending in 11. Excuse me. Um, 
Congress. You got a microphone and a runny nose. <laughs> Hear the word of the Lord. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, and that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Now, I want to make just a couple of brief comments about this Christ hymn, the great Christ hymn here. And that's one we're going to look at what is it saying about Christ or the theology of Christ according to this. And then the basic question of what difference does this make? Whether or not we believe this, what difference does this make? So first, the theology here. The hymn is clear. The earliest Christians believed that Jesus was eternally with God in this, you could call it a pre-incarnate state, right? Think of it like our calendar system, right? It's BC and then AD or, or BCE, however old you are, and, and learn that in school. But you have BC before Christ. The church has always believed that before Christ was a baby in Bethlehem, he always existed eternally BC, right? In this, this non-physical bodily form. That there was a time that Jesus came into flesh, but that was not the start of Jesus. That is what the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian Creed and all these things affirm. Um, in our text, we, we see this word um, that is translated being, in the English, we don't have a lot of different ways to use that phrase, to be. But in the Greek, there is the regular word that we translate to be. And then there's the word that Paul uses here that's hipparko, right? You can just almost feel the force of this, which is a strong word for being. It refers to origin and, and the existence question. So in saying it's being in very nature God, it is saying it is, it is literally God, or as, as the Greek does say, literally being in the same form as God. So before Christmas, Jesus was just as God was in the same form. And he always will be God, but in a different form, in a bodily form now. And Jesus, as it says, did not desire to hold this non-physical position of glory for his own advantage or to get into the best celestial parties, right? But it says that he made himself nothing by taking on the lowly status of humanity. So we're going to look more at his human side next week. And this is no knock on us homo sapiens here, right? But for a God to have anything physical about them would be degrading, right? The spirit realm was seen as good. The physical realm was seen as bad. And so God to be flesh would be incredibly humbling or humiliating, this is the same idea that we find in John chapter 1 that you might be familiar with these passages where it says in the beginning of time, before the, the bang or whatever happened before our world was here, it says in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then a few verses later, it says something happened at a distinct point in time 
when that divine, eternal word did what this Christ hymn claims, it says 114 in John, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That, that self-humiliation that Jesus chose, it did not just end with the incarnation, right? He lowered himself even more. He didn't just come and say, I'll come, but I need 3,500 square feet in a gated community, right? He says, I will come and I will enter into this story poor, without a home, with, with family that rejected me, with friends that rejected me, with no spouse, no kids, and that even lower, it says, verse 8, in, in our passage, Philippians, in verse 8, that he died a criminal's death on the cross. But the good news was that he would be raised from the dead, and that verse 9, it says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and the highest name in the world, higher than any Trump or Musk or Bezos or Gates, that name, Jesus, is far above every name. In other words, Paul's saying that, that Jesus left that glory, but he returned to that place of glory, this time with a body, which has really interesting implications for what we think about the future. But that's another sermon series that I think would be fun to have someday. But he's back where he belongs, seated in glory in heaven, ruling the universe, and that every knee will bow and every tongue will eventually confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the, the quick overview of the majestic Christ hymn of Philippians chapter 2. And so what is the application here? Like, What difference does this Christology, this theology make? And let me just say the main point here. If Jesus is not God, then his dying for us is no more effective in saving you from sin and death than if I were to die from you, for, for you, excuse me. That's it. That's it. I, and, you know, if you think about it, like, we love stories of sacrifice. Like, when we hear stories and, and see them in film and, um, and novels, stories of sacrifice, they stir our hearts. I was uh, reminded of this story in World War II. There was this uh, um, famous Father Maximilian Kolbe, and he was arrested and he was sent to Auschwitz and he was in barracks number 14 and he changed people's lives as their pastor there. And then one night a man from barracks number 14 escaped and as a punishment, the, the German commandant there said that 10 people were ordered to die by starvation. And one man was selected, was crying out, my, my children, my wife, what shall they do? And Father Maximilian Kolbe steps forward and he offers to take this man's place to die instead. And he says, I'm a priest. I have no family, but this man does. And the commandant accepted that exchange, and they were all marched off, and, and Maximilian Kolbe was never seen again. But this man survived Auschwitz, and he lived with his family until he was 95. And what is amazing about stories like this is that we see how, how deeply loving self-sacrifice is. And that man who lived while Kolbe died, he lived a full life to 95. But Kolbe's sacrifice could not keep that man from death at some point. He, Kolbe did not have any sort of supernatural ability to defeat the great enemy of death that that man was facing. Or think about it like this. What if Kolbe got this chance to have an audience with Hitler himself? And he offered in exchange and said, take my life, right? In exchange for millions of the Jews and the prisoners that you are prepared to kill. It's almost laughable to think that that would be an exchange, right? That man has no authority or power to die for so many. But when we learn that Jesus was indeed God in the flesh, 
then we see there is an authority. There is an ability to make that sort of exchange. That no finite creature can make that sort of exchange. Only God in the flesh as Jesus can say, my life for yours and all of yours and all of your sin on my shoulders. I alone can carry that. I alone can destroy the guilt of, of sin and overcome the great enemy of death that awaits all of us. Hebrews chapter 9 talks about this, looking at the blood of Jesus, compared, or the blood as an atoning sacrifice, but one that is compared and far superior to the, to the goats and bulls and lambs that the Jewish law required as atonement, as payment for sin. Hebrews 9.12 says that, that this God, because of Jesus, is, is able to mediate for us at this cosmic level. It says, Hebrews 9.12, that Jesus' blood once for all time was enough for eternal redemption. Everything in the Christian faith hinges on this question, was Jesus fully God? And this isn't just a head knowledge. I really think once, once this sinks in, this changes everything. Like you think about the invitation of, of, a, of a God in the flesh who died for us to defeat the great enemies of sin and death. You think of the invitation into that deep, deep rest that only God can provide. Like what striving and straining is left? What enemy is left to overcome? God has died for us and was raised for us and he is truly over, able to overcome the greatest forces in the universe. And this can and should, it's not easy, but this can fill us with a peace and an unshakable joy. Far greater than any teacher can give a student, any manager can give an employee, or any parent would be able to protect a child. Romans chapter 8 says, if God is for us, if God is for us, who can be against us? And that is the reality alone that we can find a deep rest and, and peace in that that we all long for. But in this theology, we also find an example for our lives that far surpasses all examples. In verse 5, this is the whole reason that Paul says he's including this. He says, model your life after Jesus, right? In the same way that Jesus did this, you need to treat your relationships like that. Pattern, pattern your life after the incarnation and death and resurrection of Jesus, right? That, that model, that example, it, it gives us this motivation to live lives of, of justice and generosity and, and sacrificial love and, and self-giving, whatever you could think of. Like, how could a Christian ever think that they are better than somebody else when you see that as the example of your God? Like, how could you ever operate out of an entitlement when you look at what God has done for you, what he deserved, and yet what he chose out of love for you? How could we withhold good or not seek the welfare of others when this whole thing, church, and all this is built on a God like that? And God showed us the, the great reversal that the way to make the most of your life is not to seek to preserve it, but to give it up for his sake, right? To lose it so that he can raise it to new life, right? And we want to grow into the kinds of people like this. And this is what we do in Advent and throughout, throughout our lives, we fix our eyes on Jesus. Like, it's not a magical formula, and in saying it as simply as that probably oversimplifies it, but meditate on these ideas of Philippians 2, just to see the great love that he has shown 
for us. As the, the great uh, preacher Charles Spurgeon once said this, he said, as certain silkworms have their silk colored by the leaves on which they feed, so if we were to feed on Christ and nothing else but Christ, we should become holy, lowly, meek, gentle, and humble like Christ. And so in this Advent, we feast on Christ together. And in doing so, we pray that Christ and his, his nature and his, his temperament and his words and his, his, his peace and all of the good things of him would, would well up in us and overflow out of us. And we feast on that truth and we remember the truth of Christ and Christology and whatever it is, it is not just detached head truth, but that truth is indeed a person. Fully God, fully man, no division and no confusion. How would you pray with me? Father, we give you thanks for the most incredible story that none of us could come up with on our own. But yet when we read the scriptures and we see the kind of story that you wrote, it moves us to, to awe and wonder and, and a deep gratitude uh, of seeing what you did for us, what you gave up for us. And we are grateful to have seen that story and to see the beauty and the goodness of Jesus. And, and maybe if some of us here have questions about, I don't know if Jesus really was that person, I pray that there would be some part of your beauty that would draw them in a little bit closer um, this Advent season. And you can work something new into our hearts as we fix our eyes on the majesty of Christ. And so do that, Holy Spirit, um, today and in these weeks ahead. And I pray all this in Jesus' good name. Amen. As I mentioned, Hebrews chapter 9 is, a, is a, an amazing passage and, and to read it sometime. But what, um, what the author of the Hebrews, um, the letter to the Hebrews, he says this. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. And what we do when we come to this table, in the words of Jesus, we remember this new covenant. This is what has been passed on, the true teaching from the early church all the way to us in 2023. And we remember with the words of Jesus that on the night he was betrayed, after he had given thanks, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you and to do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup, hear this, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's poured out for the forgiveness of sins and to do this in remembrance of me. For often, as we eat this bread and we drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Fully God in the flesh who gave his life for us. This table is open to all of those people who have looked to that Jesus and have said, yes, I do believe you are God in the flesh. You died for my sins. You were raised from the dead. This table is open to everybody who professes those things of Jesus and the families of those people. You are all welcome to come and to feast on the gifts of God for the people of God. So Matt and Emily will be here and whenever you're ready, you can come forward and tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup. Um, take your time. There's no hurry. You can worship. You can pray. Um, and just to come receive.